The following message by Brother Doug Birch is part of a series through the life of Christ. Jesus Christ only lived 33 years on earth and died a few miles from where he was born. Yet his life and death changed the world. Has he changed you? Join us on this journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as we follow the Lord from his birth to his resurrection, preaching some of the most amazing events recorded in Scripture. If you'd like to begin turning in your Bibles, I'll be looking at Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and uh, I, I want to echo also what Brother uh, Matt said a moment ago. I have thoroughly enjoyed this uh, series. Uh, I've learned a lot. It's just been such a good reminder, and it's a fast pace, I, I know, and uh, today is no different. We're going to look at three different sermons today. Uh, but we're going to look at this. Uh, this is, we've, we've really made a lot of um, ground. Uh, this is actually now the last week of our Lord's life as He is uh, in His ministry here on this earth. This uh, first part of this sermon in Mark chapter 11 is commonly entitled The Triumphal Entry. And the reason that I had Brother Matt read that from Zechariah is, be, is because this right here is a fulfillment of that prophecy. But also, if you will remember a few weeks back uh, when I preached um, uh, the messages about Peter's confession and how during that time um, Jesus called himself, constantly called himself the Son of Man, and how that at that time he began to speak of his death and how surprised the uh, apostles were and how taken aback they were. And I had him then read um, uh, uh, the, the passage from Daniel that talked about the Son of Man receiving the kingdom from the Ancient of Days. This is almost the same context because as we're going to see when, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the people are shouting, Hosanna. This prophecy is being fulfilled. And as we look at this triumphal entry, I want us to keep in mind again what was probably in the minds of the first century Christians because as he's coming in, remember, Jesus at first during his ministry didn't want anybody to really uh, tell everybody who he was. Remember that? He, he was saying, don't tell anybody. And they're trying to make him king, and he, he, wouldn't, he resisted. He wouldn't let them. Now, it appears that he, he is allowing the people to make him king. He's, that's exactly what they're thinking. Here he is fulfilling the prophecy, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. It's exactly what Zechariah said. But if you, and this is the reason I asked him to read the whole uh, context there. If you look at Zechariah's prophecy, it isn't just him riding in, he's actually delivering them. And so I wanted us to kind of put ourselves in their position as, as they're thinking that he is fulfilling the prophecy. And the reason there's such a turnaround, because where they're shouting, Hosanna, now, it's not going to be very long in that same week where many of them are shouting, crucify him. It's because they didn't, he didn't, he didn't do what they thought. He didn't come as the king that they thought 
that he would. So in Mark chapter 11, in verse 1, And when they came nigh unto Jerusalem, uh, unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and said unto them, Go your way into a village over against you, and as soon as ye, ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him, and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way, and found the colt tied by the door, without in a place where two ways met. And they loosed him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye loosing the colt? And they said unto them, uh, even, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And I want to pause right there. We're going to go down to verse 21 eventually. But I want to pause right there and just kind of take in what's happening here. There's a lot of people, it says in verse 8, many of them. They're spreading their garments in the way and putting branches there. As, as he's coming into this area, <clears throat> he stops at Bethany, which is a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. And the book of Acts, interestingly enough, says that um, the Mount of Olives, where it, it, you know, it's, it's right there at Bethany, the Mount of Olives is about a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. And so he comes to this place. Now, we don't see it here, but in John's account, we see that there's a lot of people that were uh, getting word that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They wanted to see him. But also, a lot of people wanted to see Lazarus. That's where Lazarus lived, in Bethany. They wanted to see Lazarus because Jesus had raised him from the dead. That kind of neat thing, to see somebody that had been dead, and now he's, he's alive again. And so they wanted to see him too, John writes. And so they, they come to Bethany, they're at the Mount of Olives, and the scripture says here in verse 1 that he sent forth two of his disciples, and he told them to go to the village next to them, which we don't know exactly, but it could have been Bethphage. He said, go over there, and you're going to find a colt tied up. I want you to loose him and bring him to me. Now that seems kind of odd, except that we understand what Zechariah prophesied about. This is exactly what he was going to do. Now, in Zechariah's account, it says this colt, but also the mother of the colt. Now, Matthew points this out, but Mark, Luke, and John only talk about the young donkey. There's, all, there's always been some kind of a question as to what are we talking about and why would he get both if he rode one? How could he ride both? Because it does make it look like he did. Well, before we get to that, he sent them to get this colt, and he told them, you're going to find this colt here, and if anybody asks you why you're untying him, I want you to say, the Lord has need of him. That's exactly what happened. They got to the place where the colt was, and they untied him. 
And then the people that were there, and one of the other gospel accounts says that the owners were asking, what are you doing? And he said, well, the Lord has need of him. Now, we don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us whether this was some divine thing that was a revelation to the owners that they were going to know who they were talking about because the word Lord is actually more of a generic term because the word owners, as it is translated in the scriptures, is actually the very same word, kyrios, as the word for, for Lord. Uh, I think they knew who he's talking about, whether it was by revelation that the men knew uh, because God revealed it to them, or maybe perhaps the Lord had already had some kind of conversation with this person. But at any rate, they knew who, I believe, who they were talking about, and so they let them, let them go. Now, like I said, it says here in Luke and also in John and in, in, uh, I mean, here in Mark and in Luke and in John, it's only talking about the young donkey. But in Matthew, he brings up both probably because Matthew's written to the Jews as a, as a record for the Jews. And they would be aware of Zechariah's prophecy that the prophecy talked about both the colt and the mother. Now, he said, we know he rode the young donkey because he said here, Loose him and bring him the one whereon never man sat. Now, we can speculate because the other accounts say, Matthew's account says that they put their garments on both of them. Maybe they didn't know exactly which one he was going to ride. But it's, it's thought that they brought the mother because the young donkey uh, needed to follow the mother. And maybe they led the mother through Jerusalem, so for at least for a while, so that the young donkey would know what he needed to be doing. Now, donkeys have a reputation of being stubborn. Uh, some who are donkey lovers will say, no, they're not stubborn, you just got to teach them. They're quick learners, and they want to serve. They are beasts of burden, but they want to serve, but you just can't make them do anything. You try to make them, they're going to plant their feet and say, I'm not going, you know. But if you'll teach them patiently, they will willingly serve. And that is why it is thought that perhaps the mother of the donkey was led first, at least for a time, and then the, the colt, the young colt, followed. Now, we also see here that they were putting their garments on the ground. They put, they put it, uh, made a kind of a makeshift saddle, but they also put it on the ground. But then it says that they cut down branches. This is another very interesting word because in, in the three accounts that talk about this, uh, Luke doesn't mention it at all, but Matthew, Mark, and John, all three of those use different words uh, to, to talk about what they're doing. In Matthew, the word is... Uh, something that means to break off, like they broke off something like a twig and put that down. Here in Mark, it is uh, a mass of straw, so it's like they picked up other stuff. And then Luke, um, uh, that he doesn't mention, but John, it's actually palm branches. And so it's probably a mixture of these things, and they're putting them down in the path. And you say, well, that seems kind of odd. Well, it may seem odd to us, but it also may seem odd to others when we welcome the, the, the rich and the famous and the celebrities and we roll out the red carpet. 
You know, why do you want to do that outside? The red carpet outside, that doesn't make any sense, you know. We do that, and we know what that means. It's, it's welcoming royalty, things like that. What they're doing is they're considering all that's happening, and with Zechariah's prophecy, here he's riding a colt. And they're thinking about that, no doubt, and thinking, finally, here he is, he's going to establish his kingdom. And they're shouting exactly what was prophesied in Zechariah, Hosanna, which is a word that means, oh, save and then it was used so much that it came to be a praise and adoration to God. They really believe that this is the time that he is setting his kingdom up. Now, we need to contrast that, though, with what he was really doing. He really was a king, is a king. You know, he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, he's already told his disciples all throughout the travels that he's coming and he's going to be betrayed. He's going to die. They don't understand it. They're afraid to ask him further. But they must have seen such a contrast that um, here he is coming into Jerusalem and where he has been saying, I'm going to die and resisting the calls of everybody else trying to make him king, now it appears that he's allowing them to do just that. And everybody's excited. Now, one of the things that comes into my mind, I'm thinking, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? Because you also see uh, some uh, passages that tell us that, and in John's passage, that the chief priests and the Pharisees had commanded everybody, if you see him, you tell us where he is, because they want to arrest him. Well, that's, that couldn't have been quiet, what they were doing. Hosanna! You know? He's coming into Jerusalem, and we call it the triumphal entry, because he is going to be king. That is what's in their mind. They don't seem to be doing anything. And it's also remarkable to me that the Romans aren't doing anything, perhaps because it's a Passover season and it's maybe in their minds just part of the celebration. But he comes into the town. They're spreading their garments in the way. Others are cutting down branches off the trees and, and, and uh, they're, they're just, it's like straw going in the way so that he, uh, he is riding in uh, in this triumphant way. Now, we also might contrast this why did he do that and not a horse? Well, first of all, a horse usually by this time was a war horse, a conquering king. And we'll see that, uh, um, you know, in the end, obviously, uh, when he does set up his kingdom as it's prophesied in Revelation. But there was a time, and you can look in the book of Judges, you know, because we look at donkeys, well, that just, that's meek and that's kind of uh, mild. And it's true, but... In the book of Judges, to talk about somebody and their worth, they would say, this man, oh, he had this many donkeys to ride. This, this man had this many. So it wasn't something that was really in the minds of the earlier Jews to depict uh, poverty. It, it was something that was uh, of value. By this time, it would have been considered that because, you know, after the, they had the kings established, then they did begin, begin to 
uh, put more emphasis on horses and less so on donkeys. But because it was prophesied, and because the prophecy there does talk about him coming in peace, it fit. He comes in on this donkey or the donkey's colt. And verse 9 says, they went before it. Uh, they that followed cried, they that followed, they that uh, came behind, uh, they, they that went before, they that followed cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They know who he is. They finally think, they think that he's finally allowing them to make him king. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The next verse in verse 11, Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So he came in and he looked around in the temple. Matthew's account says that he healed many blind people uh, and lame people. So he did a lot while he was there, but he was looking around in the temple. Now, we know what he's about to do. This is going to be, we're going to see the cleansing of the temple at the end here. But he didn't do that on the first time. And I can imagine that the people are just sitting there waiting for something to happen. Because he's come into Jerusalem. He has fulfilled the prophecy. And the rest of the prophecy says he delivers them all. Everything, everything really starts to move in their minds. And so this surely is just the, it's just the prelude to what's about to happen. And he comes in, he's looking at everything. Now, he is healing people and teaching people, no doubt. But then the evening comes, and I can just imagine those first century Jews that have been shouting, Hosanna, are just waiting. All right, is it coming, is it coming now? Is this when he's going to do it? Then he just goes back to Bethany. He goes back out of the town, you know, a couple of miles away. Now, we know that, again, in other gospel accounts that he has spent a lot of time praying. Verse 12 says, on the morrow, the next day, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Uh, this is uh, really a fascinating passage. Now, first of all, it says that he came in and was hungry. Maybe right away we want to say, well, why didn't he eat before he left? Well, he was probably all night praying. He knows what he's going to do next. He knows what's coming up. He's been teaching his disciples that very, very soon he's going to be betrayed. And he's going to be arrested and he's going to be put to death. So he has spent a lot of his time praying and he is hungry. <clears throat> so when he comes into the town, when he's coming uh, from Bethany, he sees a fig tree. And when he sees his fig tree, the scripture says that it has leaves. Now, what is kind of confusing here at first is it says he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet. And he curses the fig tree and it dies. He killed it. We know it did, he did because the, later in the, in the passage here in verse 21, Peter calling uh, to remembrance saying, 
unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. That was the next day. It was dried up. That doesn't usually happen that fast. But he killed it from the root. So the question, he's hungry. He comes to the fig tree. He's looking for figs and he doesn't find any. But the scripture says the time of figs was not yet. And so we might want to say, well, well, no wonder it didn't have, it wasn't time for it. Why, why are you taking it out on the porch fig tree? Well, we have to understand the nature of them. But also we have to understand that the cursing of the fig tree was not, I don't think, an isolated thing. Because it is in the same context right before what he's about to do in cleansing the temple. The fig tree had nothing but leaves. That's all that it had. And Jerusalem had the temple. They had all of this stuff that they were doing in, in, in uh, everything that you looked at looked like they were worshiping God. Well, let's just read it before we come back to that. Verse 15 says, He come to Jerusalem and Je uh, Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer any man uh, not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called uh, of all nations a house of prayer? But you've made it a den of thieves. So when you compare that with the fig tree, outwardly, things seemed to be okay with the nation of Israel. They were worshiping, it looked like. They had the temple. Everything seemed to appear that they were serious about worshiping God. But what he sees when he comes into the temple is something far from that. Well, let's go back to the fig tree. The time of figs was not yet. A fig tree first will have immature blooms. They're edible, but they're not as sweet as what we think of when we think of a fig tree. But after that part, it comes to full leaf. So first, you've got the first blooms, and then you've got the full leaf that is really supposed to show, to demonstrate, we've got some fruit here. If there's a lot of leaves, there should be fruit. You know, the fruit may not be as sweet, but it's edible. It is, if somebody's hungry, it'll work. And so what he's seeing is a fig tree that has a lot of leaves. And he comes over to it thinking that there's figs there. Now, also we have to understand, well, wait a minute, he's the son of God. He should have already known that there were no figs there. We also have to remember scripture and uh, in, in his omniscience, he does not ever cease to be God, never ceases to be omniscient, but there are times when it, God only knows how he did it, but he veils himself from certain things. He increases in wisdom, he increases in stature, but he increases in wisdom. There are things that he didn't know, not because he, he just was ignorant of everything, he just didn't know. Remember the time when they asked him about his coming kingdom. No man knows, not even the Son of Man. So sometimes, through his own choice, he shielded himself from certain things, and maybe this is one of those accounts. But he comes to the fig tree because it's got a lot of leaves, and if it's got a lot of leaves, it should have some fruit. He gets there, and there's no, no fruit. 
But then how do we deal with the last phrase? The time of figs was not yet. The reason for that is because there was a harvest time for figs when they were very much sweet. That time hadn't come yet, so the tree was barren. The tree didn't have any fruit, not because people had already picked it all, because that hadn't happened yet. The time of the figs was not yet. They had not fully uh, bloomed and, and fully um, become this, as sweet as they were going to be, so they hadn't been harvested yet. And so the reason that the tree was not having any fruit was not because it had already been picked. So when he comes there and he finds nothing but leaves, this is when he curses it because the tree was just taking up the soil. At another time, he did the same, almost the same thing. He taught a parable about a, a barren fig tree. And the master of the land says, I've come to this fig tree trying to get figs all this time and it bears nothing. Why does it encumber the ground? Why does it take up the ground? Just burn it, cut it down and burn it. And then the, the, the steward of the vineyard said, or, I mean, of the land said, well, wait a minute, let's not do that yet. Let me fertilize it. Let me till up the ground. Let me fertilize it. And then just give it some time. The next time, the next season, if it bears fruit, everything's good. If it doesn't, then burn it. I think what we're seeing here is a bookend. When Jesus started his ministry, he cleansed the temple. He did exactly what we see here. And this was, in a sense, what was happening with that other, the parable of the barren fig tree and giving Israel time to get it right. Because he said the same thing at the beginning of his ministry. He overturned everything and ran these people out, and he gave them time to get it right. It's been three and a half years. He has preached. He has taught people. He has taught people and and tried to guide them in the right way of thinking, and now here is the fig tree that has nothing but leaves. And so he cursed it. He killed it. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And the disciples heard it. This is, this is an example to show us what's about to happen with the cleansing of the temple, but not just that, it is prophetic showing that later the temple again is going to be destroyed by the Romans, or it's going to be destroyed, and this time it's going to be the Romans. So what he's doing is, I've given you a lot of time to get things right. I, I, I've, I've been patient with you. I've taught. I've sent teachers to you, and you just don't get it right. And so now, it's time for judgment. And so he comes to Jerusalem, and he comes to the temple. Now, this would be the outer court of the temple. Remember, he is of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. He would not have gone into the holy place or the holy of holies. So you remember, they've got the temple, but then they got the temple uh, courts, They've got the court of the priests, the court of the Jews, the court of the women, and the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles, as, as he says here, uh, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer? This was supposed to be a place where everybody was free to come and meditate and pray 
speak to God and have God communicate with them. We think of the time of, uh, of Hannah, and when she was praying, she was barren. She wanted to have a child, and she was praying. She was at the temple praying. You know, Eli thought, a woman, put away your drink, you know. He, he thought she was drunk. She said, I'm, I'm pouring my heart out to God. I'm doing what this temple is supposed to be here for, this, this uh, place of worship, this tabernacle. Here, he comes into the court, and they've just completely uh, changed what its purpose was, uh, was to be at first. It said he began to cast out those that sold and bought in the temple. Who are these people? Well, you're making a pilgrimage to the temple because of the Passover, and you have to bring your lamb that is without blemish. But in order for you to sacrifice that lamb, it has got to be inspected by the priest. What was happening here, because we see the phrase den of thieves, what was happening here, what we speculate is happening here is perhaps some of the priests were saying, well, you know, that's an unclean animal. Here, you're going to have to buy one over here. And selling what was the proper animal at a higher price. And then it says that, uh, so, so he was casting those people out, and he overthrew the tables of the money changers. They had to t pay their temple tax. You couldn't pay it with a Roman coin, and so they had to exchange it. And because, again, he says, den of thieves, it is very quite uh, possible uh, that, that they were exchanging it, but not giving you very much in exchange. So maybe the balance was way off. And those that sold doves, remember, if you were poor... And, and you couldn't afford a lamb, uh, you, had, you, you could offer a dove. And so there were those that were selling doves. And so why is he mad at them? Well, probably because they're selling them at higher wages, I mean, at higher prices than they should. It says also in verse 16, he would not suffer or allow those to carry, men to carry any vessel through the temple. On the outer court there, uh, you know, Jerusalem was a big city, and the, the temple environs took up a lot of space. And so, instead of going all the way around, what it appears is some people were cutting right through the court of the Gentiles because it was a shortcut. You know, it's just a thoroughfare. They were just carrying their goods, you know, just, here we go. And he, and he wouldn't allow anybody to do that. Why? Because the temple courts aren't meant to just be a highway. They're not meant to be this, um, can, can you imagine all the noise and the cacophony of all the things? That's a good word, isn't it? Cacophony. All the stuff that was happening. You couldn't go in there and, and worship and meditate and think, pray to God. Now, I understand we ought to be able to pray anywhere, but I'm sure you'll agree with me and the Lord that it's much easier to pray when you don't have all this noise all around. And so what he's doing is saying, why are you doing this? He taught them saying, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations? This was a place where the Gentiles were only allowed to go. They couldn't go any further. And so the Gentiles, which remember the Jews didn't want to really have them around anyway. Well, let's just set up camp here. We'll set up our tables here. I mean, it's just the court of the Gentiles. And, and, and we're not defiling the temple because we're not bringing it in any further. We'll just set it up here. So he says, 
this is supposed to be called of all nations a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So thieves, a den of thieves. It is not only a place where this uh, thieves are taking advantage of other people. It is a it is a den of it. You have uh, because it's the um, priests that were in charge of all this, and so they were probably you know skimming off the top. So so they they were not only allowing this to go on, they were welcoming it. It was a sanctuary for the thieves, where it should have been a sanctuary for those worshiping, those praying. It had just been turned into something that it shouldn't have been. The scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. Now, just think about that. Think about what's happening. He's come into Jerusalem. The people, it's no doubt what they think he is, who they think he is. They're, they're I mean, they're, they're on cloud nine. I mean, it's finally going to happen. And the next day, he's running all these people out. Can you just imagine? And you read of all, all the other accounts, you get kind of a, a bigger picture here. <laughs> they, they were like, what is happening here? Nobody tried to stop him. This, the, the fulfillment of the scripture, just like he did the first time, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. With great zeal, he was trying to drive those people out to reestablish a quiet place where people could come and pray. And not, I mean, think of a bazaar. You know, think of a, uh, you know, an area where everybody's just shouting and you can't really hear anybody except somebody standing right next to you. That's what was happening in the court of the Gentiles. And so he drove them out. And remember, in John eleven fifty seven, 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they had given commandment that if anybody knew where he was, tell them, because we're going to arrest him. Here he is, right there. The scribes and the chief priests heard it. They sought how they might destroy him because they were afraid of him and because all people were astonished at his doctrine. So he's, he's teaching people, and nobody can deny what he's saying. It, it, it harkens back to the time when they sent the people to arrest Jesus, and they came back without him, and they said, where is he? We told you to arrest him. They said, nobody has ever taught like this man teaches. It was convicting. It was powerful because it was the Son of God. And here he is trying to reestablish what the temple was supposed to be a picture of. And they want to kill him. Verse 19, when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. He went on to teach some other things, and we'll not go there this morning, but 
What I'd like for us to understand here, I know that was for the Jews, that was specifically a judgment against them and a prophetic utterance of the future destruction of the temple and a judgment to the leadership. But just as this fig tree, and as Peter remarked, it's, it's, it's dried up from the roots. You know, usually when something dies, it just kind of, I think that's dead. And in a few weeks, yeah, I, I really, it is dead. There was no mistaking. The next day, they see this thing, it's dry. And Peter remarks at this. The lesson we can learn, all those wither who reject Christ. The leaders in the temple had rejected him. Outwardly, they looked like everything was fine, just like the fig tree. But there was nothing but leaves. Nothing there, no fruit, nothing. Also, we think of all of these things that he taught, you will know them by their fruit. And so how can we find application? Obviously, Jesus is the King of Kings. We can, I think, apply this by extension. First of all, have you received or have you rejected Christ? There's no other way to get to heaven but through Christ. It doesn't matter if outwardly everything looks fine. It doesn't matter if, if, if your parents, your, your grandparents, if your whole family knows the Lord, if you don't doesn't mean anything to you. The only way any of us can get to heaven, the only way any of us can find salvation is through Jesus Christ. And it is through believing in him, receiving him as our savior, that he came and that he died on our behalf. And as we place our faith and trust in him, that's when we become saved. We can apply it, I think, also to how we conduct our services, a house of prayer. You know, um, I said a moment ago that I'm, I've been shaped a lot by Brother Penn. A lot of his uh, Penn-isms go through my head time after time. And, you know, one of the things that... Uh, I, kind of comical, but I, I just, I've said it over and over through the years. When people say, oh, we got to do this. We got to bring them in, Brother Doug. We got to, we got to do this. If we don't do this, they'll go away. And I would say something like, well, if it takes a hamburger to get them here, it's going to take a steak to keep them. A lot of stuff like that. Where, because the flesh knows no boundaries. And if we let it go far enough, We'll turn our church into a den of thieves. Because that's just what the flesh does. Well, that's not working. Let's do this. And then we could probably become a church that is nothing but leaves. Let us stay focused on Christ. As the prophet Zechariah said, Behold, your king is coming. He came. 
He didn't come the way they thought, and so they rejected him. He was still the king. We have, we have what the Lord wants us to have. He doesn't expect us to cleverly repackage it, make it more palatable. Just preach it. Follow it. Would you stand, please, as we prepare for an invitation? Would you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that you've given us to be here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings that we enjoy because of your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your watch care over us. We pray that you would continue to be with us, and we pray that you'd be with our church, be with our pastor and his family. We pray that we would always be found in your will. We're so thankful, Lord, for this uh, series that we're going through and how we can be reminded of what you've done for us and what you've preserved for us. Lord, we pray for those that may be here today that have never trusted in you as personal Savior. We pray that this would be the day that a lost soul will find their way to you. And whatever decision needs to be made for you, we pray that you would touch that person's heart, that they would just repent and come to you. We ask that you forgive us in the times that we failed you. In Jesus' name, amen.